Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 27, part 2. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. I got to give context because we cut off mid-chapter. Jesus is at this point on the cross. He's been abandoned by the, the church. The law hasn't saved him. The priests have abandoned him. The, he's been abandoned by the civic government of the Gentiles. The Romans have tossed him off to the wolves. And now he's on a cross and he's even got the two robbers on either side of him mocking him. The lowest of the low have rejected Jesus. So at the end of this time, this is when like there's the light of the world gets snuffed out, right? The whole world has rejected Jesus at this moment. Even his disciples have not, aren't there. Like the closest we get is some of his, the women disciples kind of watching from a distance, right? But the disciples, they're gone. So John's version of this is that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews and what's above his head, the Romans have put a titleus, uh, where we get the name for the golf balls. A titleus was the label that a criminal got so that everybody walking past the criminal would know what the criminal did, right? So he, and usually they would hang it around his neck and that cross beam would be at the top of the post. But with Jesus, they hang it around the post and not around his neck necessarily. So it's a titleist that goes over his head, a sign. And, I, and we ran out of time last week, but that sign in first century Palestine would be written in Latin, the Roman language, Greek, the commonly spoken language, and in Hebrew because Jesus was a Jew. So it would be written in three languages. So every one of the four Gospels it's like they weren't looking at the sign, right? Because every one of the four Gospels says that sign says something slightly different. And I think what's going on is that, like I said, in John's version, it has Jesus of Nazareth, the name of the criminal, and then King of the Jews, the crime that was committed. So some of the Gospels just say above his head would put King of the Jews because as a writer, you're like, we all know we're talking about Jesus here. So they didn't repeat the first part of it. Likely it said the whole thing, um, in the Hebrew, the again, in, in, in we get this record of the, the Jewish people were really angry about this sign. And I want to unpack that because it's really cool. In the Hebrew, when you say king of the Jews, two things happen different from the, the Latin and the Greek. First, in the Hebrew, the Romans didn't know how to speak Hebrew. So they what we think they might be so angry about is that they would have prepended the language or done it, they would have done the grammar slightly wrong. And if they do this grammar slightly wrong in Hebrew, the other, the second thing with the Hebrew is it's written right to left, not left to right, right? So if they, if they did it the wrong way or if they, they did it right to left but used bad grammar, the Jesus king of the Jews would be Y-H-M-H if it was done in proper Hebrew. But if they prepended it like a lot of Latin-speaking Romans did back then, they would have used the wrong word there, and it would have been Y-H-V-H. And if you know what that means, 
that would be the capital letters of each of those four words being, saying Yahweh. It would have been Jesus of Nazareth, and in the Hebrew it would have said Yahweh. This is why the priests got so mad. And Matthew kind of skips that, but I, I think it's so cool, it's worth mentioning in each of the Gospels as we go through them. But what they saw above his head, it was likely Jesus of Nazareth, or actually it would have been left, or it would have been this direction, Jesus of Nazareth, Yahweh. They would have been so furious with this that they would have come in and say, change the sign, and Pilate said, I'm, I'm going to leave it exactly as I wrote it. In other words, I'm not fixing the grammar. I'm leaving it that way because it bugs you. And he doesn't want them to be happy with this situation. So I just wanted to share that um, because I, it's, everything just falls into place with this. And it seems like a really dark story, but we haven't covered Matthew in a dark, like, look at how bloody and horrible the cross is because I don't think Matthew writes it that way. He writes it like Jesus was crucified and then they sold his clothes. He's going through the prophecy fulfillment and in verse 45, he does the exact same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. As a writer, I would be tempted to describe people screaming in the streets. The mockery probably just went hush. All the yelling and screaming and, and teasing and the, the, when, the, when the sun goes out, there probably was like this moment of awe, like what just happened here? And from the third hour, the sixth hour to the ninth hour would be like noon to three o'clock in the afternoon for us. That's three hours with no light on the planet. That's an odd thing to say. Well, there should be a record of that. And this is the stuff you don't get in public school history class. Luke 23, 44 says it was the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. He records it too. But both of the gospel writers record a very specific set of times here from this time to this time, a three hour block. Why are they so specific about this? Uh, three hours, by the way, so you'd say, oh, this is an eclipse. In fact, the pagan writers of the day used the phrase eclipse. They had no idea how to describe this. Something else blocked the sun. And, 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 and I'm going to walk through that a little bit, um, but three hours is way too long for a normal eclipse. You've, you know, remember in elementary school, you go out when the eclipse is happening? Maybe I'm dating myself, but you go out and you cover your eyes and you use little box things. How long does an eclipse last? A few, min few minutes. They're making a point here that there was three hours of darkness all over the land. Like, that's an interesting thing. So it's notable, it's significant. It, they're actually recording a miracle here. Nothing short of a miracle. There's no natural explanation for this. The other piece is that Passover happens when there's a full moon, and so there can't be an eclipse, right? It doesn't work that way. So there has to be a slightly less moon for the eclipse to work. So if the last three hours on the cross, and there was normal daylight for the first three, and there was this cursing and, and whatnot, and the last three hours he's on the cross, there's this darkness that comes, Something's happening that's epic, and it changes people. So the question is, did this really happen? Like, how does this, or is Matthew just making it up? Is Luke just making it up? Like, if they're making it up and writing it, Luke would lose his job as a historian. Matthew would lose his credibility with the Jews. They're not arguing that it happened. They're stating that it happened. That's really important when we look at the historicity of a text. They're not making an argument for this. They're, they're recalling something that all of their readers would remember and they're connecting an event that occurred. And that's very different than trying to convince somebody that something occurred, right? So he just states it in, in flat out language in verse 45. And then, and then here's the other thing. 
and this is where I, I really went nuts with this. My question is, if darkness happened all over the land and it's not an eclipse, it had to be all over the planet. So if we look at ancient texts of other cultures, we should find some things, and we do, and it lights up all over, and this is stunning. So let's go to Peru. Uh, this is from uh, when the uh, Pedro Siza de Leon, when the Portuguese started moving into South America, they started capturing stories from the, the natives that lived there, Native Americans, Native uh, South Americans. Here's a quote from one of those journals where they were recording what the holy people said of the Peruvians. They recorded, there was a legend of a time of worldwide darkness. The earth shook and the sheep attacked their shepherds. So what they remember is like, all of a sudden the sheep started attacking them. <laughs> and this was a memorable thing and it went into Peruvian legend. The ancient people experienced a period of time without light. So they prayed until the sun finally rose over Lake Titicaca. And in the midday, they even have the time of day. And in the midday, a white man who carried great authority came into their land and he said that he had turned the hills into plains and vice versa and the fountains sprang from the very stones. He was a man to be venerated and those ancient people regarded him as the maker of everything. It's stunning. And when the Peruvians saw the Spanish with their beards, they thought it was that guy because they drew pictures of that guy. Why don't I hear this in history class? Like, this is the most interesting stuff. If you go to China, China, China the Chinese kept excellent records. So we know that between March and May of 5 BC, according to their calendar, their astronomy records show the appearance of a comet that undoubtedly symbolizes change. And the extended appearance of this comet indicates that this is an event of great importance. This happens at exactly the time of Jesus' birth. Flipping forward in the Chinese records, 30, exactly 34 years later after that event, they claim that both the sun and the moon were eclipsed by something else. Like, let's tune into this. Somehow, and this is from the history of the later Han Dynasty, Volume 1, Chronicles of Emperor Guanghu, the seventh year in 31 AD, right? They keep good records. Summer, fourth moon, on the day of Ren Wu, the imperial edict reads, Yen and Yang have mistakenly switched, and the sun and moon were eclipsed, and the sins of all the people are now on one man. The emperor proclaims a pardon to everyone under heaven. Like, where does that come from? It comes because God was speaking through every religion on the planet at the same time. At Jesus' death in Annals number 18, the eclipse on the day of Guhai, a man from heaven died, is recorded in their journals. What? You go to Roman records. Fliegen records in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was an eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour from the ninth in Sextus Julianus Africanus History of the World. African records of Roman rule. Non-believers, they're not trying to convince you of Jesus. They're just recording what happened. This wasn't a debated thing because it was recorded all over. Here's Pliny in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. There was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour, and the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen, and there was an earthquake. What? Like, how does that happen? This is a well-established event. Nobody challenged it because everybody saw it. You'd be a fool to challenge that it happened. Early Christians used this event as a reference point to convince other people. Today, you've got idiot people that think in the last 10 years we've figured it all out. And they're like, these people were just make-believing. No, they weren't. 
That's ridiculous. This is Dionysus in a letter that he wrote to Polycarp. Polycarp being a Christian, trying to convince him. What do you have to say about that solar eclipse, which occurred when the Savior was put on the cross? At a time when the two of us were in Heliopolis, we both witnessed the extraordinary phenomenon of the moon hiding the sun at the time that was out of season for their coming together. They shouldn't have, shouldn't have worked that way. We saw the moon begin to hide from the, the sun from the east, travel across the other side of the sun, and then return on its path so that the hiding and restoration of the light did not take place in the same direction, but rather diametrically opposed directions. Whatever blocked the sun did not come in the direction that the moon comes. Something blocked it. Also, this is noted in Origen, Flagian, Eusebius. Most, those three all mention an earthquake that went alongside this. Like, if I could find more records, I would. It was an unnatural, supernatural event that was commonly seen and written down all over the world. Amazing. On the whole, this is, this is going back to Dionysus, on the, on the whole, the world was pressed of the most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and in many places in Judea and other districts were all thrown down. This darkness was written about by Thallus in the third book of his history. Of course, there's Josephus too, right? We love Josephus. Here's Josephus. It was not only on account of our contest with them, but on account of all mankind in common that we've taken vengeance on those who have been authors of great injustice towards men and the great wickedness towards the gods, for which sake we suppose it was that the sun turned away from his light. Sun turned his light away from us as unwilling to view the horrid crime that we were guilty of. Antiquities, book 14. Then you get my last and my favorites, the Irish. Irish people know nothing about, they don't even know what Judaism is, right? So when the, when the, so the Druidic religion of Ireland kept an oral tradition. So a lot like with the Peruvians, when um, people with writing met them, they would talk to the Druids and write down their legends. There's one legend, and this one, okay, the Irish are known for their blarney. So I even take this one with just a grain of salt because it's way out there. They had a king called Connor MacNessa that was born, the Druids told him, on a very special day. And his whole life as the prince grew up, they told Connor, you were born on the same day as the savior of the world. Connor grew up thinking he was the savior of the world. He's in a battle. He takes a bullet. We talked about slings and bullets with David and Goliath. Took a bullet to the head and it sunk into and cracked his skull, and he didn't die. So he thought he was invulnerable, but the druid said, we're not going to pull that out, because if we pull it out, you're going to just bleed to death and die. So we're going to leave the sling bullet in your head and just tape it on and hope everything goes good. So he lives his elder years with this bullet in his head, and he's been told, but this legend that they have, it's crazy. The, the, the druidic legend has everything but the name of Jesus. Savior of the world, came to help people. He was a healer. He saved people. Um, he may get to Ireland someday, you know, if you wait long enough, uh, he'll get here. Then the world turned against their God, so they called him a Messiah, and they killed him and they pierced him and they, used the, they didn't use the term crucifixion because the Irish knew nothing about it, but they do say that he was nailed <laughs> hand and foot and that he was the savior. And then I'm going to read one small quote. Again, this thing is chapters of detail around. And it's like, 
you're like, come on, I, I'm thinking St. Patrick wove this one in or something because it's just too on there. Near the time of your birth, O King O'Connor, the Savior of mankind was born, and since then the kingdoms far eastward he taught, toiled, prayed, till this morning when the wicked men seized him, fast bound him with nails to a cross, lanced his side, and at that moment the gloom and confusion of the earth's cry of dread when he died. The reason he called the Druids in to tell him that was because the sun had gone dark and he wanted to know why. And this is the reason they gave him hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Why don't we hear this stuff growing up? Because it roots our, like, our faith gets to be rock solid when we know these things, right? We don't doubt things when we hear it. So the Irish, of course, are, are known to spend some blarney, but still the age of these records is uncanny, the accuracy of them. The end of the story is Connor McNissa gets so angry that people would dare hurt the Savior that he jumps off of his throne and he starts running like he's just going to swim across the water. He's going to run to the, the Near East and he's going to kill the people that killed Jesus. In his exertions, the stone pops out of his dead. He falls dead. And when he falls dead, the sun comes back out. Nuts. Nuts stuff. Jesus is in Gethsemane and, and his soul is being pressed, right? The oil is being pressed. It's not broken, but it's darkened. And the light goes out, and at this time, the light of the world is snuffed out. One last abandonment of Jesus is the sun itself goes off on him. He has to die in darkness. It's the ninth hour is a key time. Again, I know I'm spending a lot of time on verse 45, but this is pretty neat too. The ninth hour is special. It's really special in Jewish tradition. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. So it's before your next day begins, the end of the day, right? So it's this kind of thing. You get 3 o'clock, it's your evening sacrifice, you go home, you eat supper, then the sun goes down, and that's the end of the day. So at, the, at, at 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, Elijah turns, the ball priests have had their turn, and then it turns to him, and it's about 3 o'clock when it happens, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near, 1 Kings 18, and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. You could put those words in Jesus' mouth, like right on time. Ezra 9.6, the result of uh, Elijah with that is his altar lights up on fire and everything lights up, and there's a massive revival in Israel, and they put away the priests of Baal. Ezra 9.6, And I said, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And since the day of our fathers to this day, we've been guilty. And for our iniquities, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. Ezra prays at 3 o'clock and massive revival pops across the land. People that were away from God come close to God. 
1 Kings 18, Elijah prays. Ezra 9.5, there's revival. It goes on and on. Daniel 9.21, Daniel prays and God sends his angel at the evening sacrifice. Peter and John in Act 3.1, they go to the temple and it's at the time of the evening sacrifice that they do the, they, the blind man sees. First miracle post-Jesus. Acts 10.3, the first Gentile convert happens when Cornelius prays at the time of the evening sacrifice. And you get the first gentle convert to Christianity. It's a really important time. So at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Matthew put this in here? Translated, he puts, it, he puts the translation in there so we know what it means. But he's writing to a Hebrew audience. So Jesus cries out in the Aramaic. There might be Hebrews that don't speak Aramaic. I don't know. It's written in the Greek with the Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani. So not Aramaic, I'm sorry, in the Greek. And, and Matthew translates it. He's quoting something that all Hebrew readers would know he's quoting. There's really only one place in the Old Testament where that comes up. It's in Psalm 22. Turn there, I'm going to read a big portion of it. If you don't know where the Psalms are, just like open the middle of your Bible and you'll be there. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from my words from roaring? So the psalm is this sense of abandonment that David starts writing when he's walking away from Jerusalem. And he writes a series of psalms as Absalom. We're going to do this tonight at Bible study. Absalom walk, takes over the kingdom and David feels absolutely abandoned because of his own sin. And out of David at this moment of, of repentance comes these beautiful psalms of being, having, having this darkness. So it says Jesus cried out, anabeo. It's the only place that it's used. It's a strong emotional exhale associated with breath. He screamed this out so everyone could hear it. And when he does, Jesus always being connected to the Father. Always, like we're always connected. Our mind and our bodies are always connected. Our soul is always connected to our mind and body. To feel our, the, the trinity of humanity be asunder to where our mind is no longer connected to our own soul, that would be a horrifying feeling, a devastating feeling. And God is brought out of communion with himself for this moment, and he cries this out loud. Again, I'm going to keep your finger in Psalm 22. We're going to get to it. He's crying this out. And you got to think, what's going through his head? And he's quoting this psalm. That's what's going through his head. And every Hebrew that would hear it would know it. Maybe it's at the very beginning of Psalm 22. So as he starts to do it, maybe he loses his breath. When you're on the cross, one of the things is you suffocate. Your lungs can't keep up anymore because the blood starts filling. So maybe he's saying the first verse of the psalm, but as he dies, this is the words going through his heart. And it's beautiful what he's doing. And, I, and it's why Matthew records it. The Father regards God the Son as an actual sinner for this moment, and the holiness of God can't abide the unholiness that Jesus has taken upon himself for this moment. He turns away, and he rejects the sin, and the light of the world is snuffed out for three hours because sin is just not going to be part of what God is. It's just this massive moment, theologically significant moment. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know no righteousness, but we can take on righteousness because of Jesus Christ. He knew no sin, but he takes it on so that we can come into righteousness. Wow. So we're inspired by the Holy Spirit to reject our sinful nature, to abandon it 
Totally. Keep your fingers in Psalm 22. Actually start reading it a little bit. This is 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that of our earthly house, this tent, this hunk of flesh is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, this is 2 Corinthians 5. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we are found, not found naked, for who are we in this tent groaning, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that the mortality might be swallowed up by life. Again, this is heady stuff. Now he has prepared for us ever the very thing, God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We are experiencing in this life right now the last years that we will be apart from our God. Like this is the time of distance from our God. And for Jesus to come and incarnate himself was to to make himself into something that was limited in some ways because he loved us. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes, well-pleased, rather than be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord. Like that's what we're looking forward to. Our flesh can say you've abandoned me in the same way that Jesus feel God's abandoned him. We want to get to the point where we actually like are sick of our own sin and we reject it totally, right? We want this moment. It's not a bad thing to walk away from sin, but I don't want to give any daylight to sin in my life. I want to shut it off just like God did when Jesus took it on himself. So for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he, and he died for all that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them who rose again. We don't even live for ourselves anymore. It's gone. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? I'm given the hope here because like, the light's out. Why did God abandon himself here? He did it to show us the way spiritually that there is an accounting for sin that he's even accountable to. No one escapes the accountability of sin, even Jesus. And we have to do the same. We have to walk away from it just like Jesus felt abandoned. Different for Jesus, however, he's done nothing wrong. He's never experienced sin before these three hours. He's never felt it. He's never known shame. He's never known anger. He's never known those kinds of or sinful anger. He's just never even known it. But he's suffering the consequences of it for truth and love. Ex- incredible spiritual exchange going on here. This is the core of our faith. The temple curtain gets ripped, right? The sun is blinded. The earth itself quakes. This is a physical transaction happening too. Massive event. And all those people that were mocking an hour ago, they aren't mocking anymore. They're trying to keep their footing because everything under them just shook. I love this. Jesus bearing our sins and accepting them willingly, with Matthew's pointed out over and over and over again, he's dying a just death for those sins. He's drinking the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 53 puts it really powerful. Jesus is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As we hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And, but he was wounded in the Lord and let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He's, he's literally quoting the Pharisees and what they said to Jesus on the cross. It's exactly what Matthew records. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. And I was cast from you from birth and my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. And I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of, out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. One of the things, medically, when we get to Luke, we'll go through this more, but the heart will start to palpate when it can't move the blood around properly. Like it'll start to overrun. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me out of the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. None of his bones are broken. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is exactly what Matthew records. Hundreds of years before it happens. But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Jesus isn't like, he says, I'm a worm. But it's not like he knows that he's special. So God, why are you letting this happen? Save me from the lion's mouth and out of the horns of the wild oxen. Then the transition happens in Psalm 22. This is the part that he's too exhausted to say out loud with his mouth, but it's the part that everyone that heard the first line would know is coming. But you have answered me. Did God answer Jesus on the cross with a word or a, a, a fresh breeze to go across his face saying, I'm with you, I'm here? Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, fear him. All of you offspring of Israel, for he's not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. God can actually be there. And when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be to you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. And all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. And it will be recounted of the Lord in the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he, ha that he has done this. I love that. Jesus, I think, his last moments on the cross, he's thinking to himself, "What's gonna? I can't keep myself alive right now. Right? I'm not going to. I'm going to hold that power back. But they're going to remember this for generations. This is going to be the message that the world hears. This is going to be the impact. Knowing the fulfillment of that, it changes everything about how we read the Old Testament. Like we can't read Psalm 22 the same again. 
knowing that this is what Jesus was quoting on the cross, it changes everything. This is what he's thinking that's, as, he's, as he's dying on a cross with his last breath. This is what he's thinking is, this is going to be so good for so many people for generations to come. I'm going to do this. I'm going to let my life go because no one could take Jesus' life. Only he could take his own life. In the end, he's the one that lets it pass. He has done this. This is what he's done. Okay, we'll get back to our chapter. We got more than just the first two verses. Wow. Eli, Eli. Some of those who stood there when they heard that, they said, this man's calling for Elijah, <laughs> like, which is almost comical. You think of this? Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So they go back to their mockery. The last thing Jesus hears on this planet is that they misunderstand even his last thing that he tried to say, right? Eloi sounds a lot like Elijah. They misunderstood him. Like the intent was to stop him from calling for Elijah. Like maybe they're scared he's actually going to, Elijah's actually going to show up and take him down. So Elijah here is not the word Eloi. They just misunderstand him. It had to be downheartening for Jesus to think, they don't even understand my last dying words, right? What are your last words before you're going to go? And you say something really important, right? And they can't even understand that. They give him the, the sour wine because, again, that was a, a way in which to dull the senses, uh, to help people have a little less pain. So as he's screaming out, they're, they're trying to give him something that would dull the pain. And... Uh, the crowd says no. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded out his spirit. Uh, it, it's not clear what he yells out. It wasn't understandable. Uh, Matthew doesn't record what it is. I wonder if it was the last line of Psalm 22. He has done this. It is finished. It is done. Which in the other gospels they record, it is finished as part of what he says at the very end. John 19.30 John records it as a single word, Teddy Lestiae. Uh, and Matthew just gives the first verse of Psalm 22, where John perhaps gives the last verse of Psalm 22. And he yielded up his spirit. All humanity then has killed their Savior. John 10, 17, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Jesus has already told his disciples don't worry when they, when they say I'm dead because nobody kills me and nobody keeps me dead. And he's already counseled his disciples, but they're nowhere to be seen. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. We've done plenty on that already today. The top to bottom is significant and that usually when something gets ripped from the earth, it would get ripped from the loose end of the curtain up, not the end of the curtain with all the connectors. So the fact that it's ripped from heaven down is beautiful. God ripped the curtain, not humanity. So God starts to do a work where God has, has, has lifted his hand for a moment. God starts to move again. The veil separates the Holy of Holies and the temple. I think all of us kind of know this, right? It's a big, thick curtain. You don't just rip the temple. But God can rip it. Not a big thing for him. He made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine living, and he wove cherubim into it, right? It was the thing that blocked humanity from the Holy of Holies. Being ripped open, that's entirely symbolic for the Jewish reader. 
the way to the Holy of Holies just got ripped wide open. Nobody stops anybody from getting to God anymore. Why? Because we can go through Jesus Christ. The first century, a Jewish historian records that Herod extended the temple's height to 40 cubits high, about 60 feet tall. This curtain would have been 60 feet tall. A glorious piece of fabric. Uh, he also records that the veil itself was four inches thick. That's a pretty thick piece of fabric woven together and woven in. It was a big veil that blocked humanity from getting to God's ark from the symbol of his presence. Now anybody goes through it. The temple rends the garment in the same way that the priests rend, rended his garments when Jesus proclaimed he was the Messiah. The priesthood is done. The temple is done. So there's no need for it anymore. The word of God increased, Acts 6-7, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. The priesthood moves outside the temple. No, no mistake about it. Matthew's making that case when he talks about that splitting of the veil, yet nobody can dispute him because it happened. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, there's a mourning that happens, even the earth itself has changed. Um, some people believe this is there was a tectonic split because of the recording of earthquakes all over the world that were significant again, uh, again for people to write down. People believe there might have been a pop or a shift in the tectonic plates, perhaps that even drove up the uneroded mountains of the Rockies and the Alps. Right, A massive shifting of the earth happened at this moment. So a contrasting image of a wide open door to hell, now there's a wide open path to heaven, a true choice. That happens. Verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is nutso. Like this is the walking dead zombie moment. Like people struggle with this passage in Matthew, but Matthew records it, I think, because it happened and nobody's defying him. They argue about if Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't argue about people walking around. Imagine if you're sitting in Jerusalem and the world just went dark. You hear a knock on the door and you answer the door and it's your late grandmother showing up to tell you to clean your room. Right? This had to be a moment for people. This was a striking moment. But the path to hell just got a veil put in front of it. Nobody has to go to hell until God says to. Nobody's truly dead until God says they're truly dead. So these people in the graves, these, they're called the saints in verse 52, which means the sinners are probably still dead. The saints wake up. So it was the grandma that you loved that showed up at your door. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. This is terrifying and amazing at the same time. Verse 53, in the coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew's saying like lots of people saw this happen. The saints showed up. Like, what did Joseph look like? He would have been there. Elijah, he, he showed up. You know, these saints were buried in these graves around this city, right? They still are today. Graves usually were covered with stones and lids. So earthquakes wouldn't move a stone or a lid, right? This is a supernatural opening of graves. So that, that, that it's not connected that the two, that the earthquakes caused the graves to be open in verse 52. They're different events. N nonetheless, they're raised. So we get this image of the temple being rent, the earth being rent, the grave being busted. Like all these things are just done. And the, the worry of the grave can go away for the saints. Third image of resurrection, of life after death, the sun, the temple, the rocks, the graves, the dead are raised. You see what Matthew's doing in this chapter? All of creation cries out 
that this is a change in the game. So they went, imagine this, happening. They appeared to many. It's a reference. It's not an argument. He's saying this happened. Matthew's Jewish readers would remember it, and Matthew wants them to remember it. Don't forget that this happened. Then Matthew notes the source of the first-person accounts, because remember, he's in hiding too. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, they saw the earthquake and the things that happened. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. We got to know that Roman soldiers do not give up their emotions easily. They were known for their stoicism. They'd lose all credibility if they went all gushy. So the reason he's pointing out the centurions is because of anybody that would keep their cool in a crisis, it was these war-weathered Roman centurions, these stoic statues of humans that never get shaken, yet they are shaken. Um, clear witness here. Um, this... This is also, you could argue, a, a Gentile profession of faith. Truly, this was the Son of God. I would argue that following God is different than believing in God. They're two different things. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. The problem with the centurion is he's speaking in the past tense. He's thinking the guy's dead because for three days he's going to be dead. So Matthew gets the tense right because it's likely what the person said. And he fears greatly. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, James and John, and the, and the, or James and Jesus, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So two sisters and Mary Magdalene. I, I want to point out here, a lot of people focus that it was just these three, but 56 says among whom... Uh, meaning there were many women, verse 55. Apparently women weren't a threat of civic rebe rebellion. So the women could be at this event and not have the Romans slaughter them, right? But if the disciples showed up as men, the Romans would have seen a little group of rebels and they would have taken care of it. That or the men were chicken and the women weren't. I know Bonnie's going to like that point. Um, but Mary Magdalene was healed, healed from demon possession back in Luke 8 too. Um, they are looking from afar, so even they aren't up close to the whole situation, so they're watching from a distance. Um, but what a great honor. I, I want to point out, I don't think Matthews is worried about gender issues as we are today. Notice that Matthew's pointing out the Gentile recognizes it and the women recognized it. What he's doing is he's separating the Jew from the Gentile and just kind of the, that idea that the, the Jewish male was the, the relevant party here. And Matthew's kind of going out of his way in these verses to point out that the people that were kind of still there and recognizing Jesus at the end were not the disciples. And I think he's pointing that out because of the Pharisee as a movement in the first century. It was so male-dominated and so male-centered that it was off-kilter from what God intended in the Old Testament. So Matthew's going out of his way to point these things out, and it's a great honor to be here with Jesus in the end. Jesus could have, if his eyes weren't filled with blood, he would have seen them in the distance. Or at the very least, he could hear them crying. And he knew they were there. The people he loved were still around. Jesus came for all is a theme in Matthew. It has been a theme in Matthew, and he doesn't let that go here in the last second to last chapter. Jesus came for the Gentile. He came for the Roman. He came for the, the woman. He even came for the prostitute. He came for everybody, not just the disciples. 
So Matthew goes out of his way to say this. He's highlighted Gentiles, the poor, the rich, the Samaritans, the Cyrene, Simon the Cyrene. He's gone out of his way to include all of those people in this narrative. It goes on and on. Verse 57. Now he's going to highlight a Pharisee. Right? Last but not least, he highlights Joseph of Arimathea, who we know was, a, was, was one of the Sanhedrin. So he, he, now when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea. So we can't just hate on rich people anymore. Some of them are decent. A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He gets the title of disciple. Did you see that? He's not one of the 12, but he's definitely a follower. I like the fact that we've never heard of Joseph and we never really hear of him again. He's just a dude that's there and he helps out and he doesn't use his wealth to take prominence. The fishermen are the 12. He's just a guy that's there to help. And when he sees an opportunity to minister to the body of Christ, <laughs> before the body of Christ is the church, it was actually the body of Christ. We get this image of how to care for the body of Christ. It's beautiful what he's doing here. And he just shows up. He's got what, it, he's got what he can give that only he can give to serve the body of Christ. And he gives it freely and generously. It's just this awesome passage. This man, verse 58, went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Not a big mob at this point, but just the two Marys. He'd become a disciple of Jesus. There's hundreds of people that have become disciples of Jesus that weren't there, but Joseph shows up. We're best known for what we do when it comes to how we serve the body of Christ. Honestly, that's the only reason Joseph's in the Bible right now. It's not what he did outside of this, but it's an image of that treatment. Luke um, notes that he's that Sanhedrin member. Um, it's not Peter that comes to take care of the body. It's not James or John that takes care of the body. It's just some person we've never heard of before. Just steps up at the right moment. He's a simple, a quiet person. He's not a pastor. He's not a deacon. He's just a servant. And he knows the right thing to do. And I think the Holy Spirit moved Joseph to do exactly this at exactly this time to make exactly this point. So Matthew can write, the centurion saw it, the women saw it, even one of the Sanhedrin saw it. One, he goes to great lengths to do a kindness and he asks for nothing in return. He goes to, he could get in trouble with Pilate because he could be seen as allied with him. But he, he really risks his own life to give up his reputation and follow Jesus and do what's right for the body of Christ. He wraps it in a clean linen cloth. This is customary for burial, right? He's doing all that he can before the Sabbath to purify and get this body ready for burial. He shows the simple, honest, sweet, loving care for a body that is mangled and bloody and destroyed and beaten. But he cleans it up. I can see him with a hot rag just wiping off the caked blood that had been dried out in the sun, cleaning it up. I can see him putting new oils on it. Maybe Mary still has some to shake out from her vial that she poured on him already. He lays it in a new tomb. Jesus was born in a virgin birth and he's buried in a virgin tomb. There's no other body that's been put there. They've dug up Gordon's tomb and done research on it. It was a tomb that was never fully used. So it's one of the sites they believe that was this tomb that we're talking about. There's no influence here. 
that's affecting Joseph. There's no reason for him to do this. His savior that he's a disciple of, in his head, just died. He's got absolutely no reason to do this other than just that he loves this person that he served. He ignores the personal cost. It's not popular. It's not easy. He's associating with people that a Sanhedrin shouldn't be associating. He's associating with a prostitute because she's there too, helping with the body. He's got, you ever like go out and you're like ashamed of like your friend from the church because they're nutso? And you go around your non-nutso people that know that you're a very sober-minded Christian and you got your nutso friend with you and there's like this moment of like, okay, who do I associate with here? Do I try to convince my non-Christian friend that I'm not that nutso? Or do I just let it go and say, yep, I'm nutso too? Because I don't care what people think. And you just let that sort of thing go. And Joseph doing this and doing it with Mary and Mary, this is an amazing kind of moment, right? I hope when, they, when the Chosen gets to this point and they, they video this, I hope it's a five-minute scene of cleaning the body, that it takes time. There's a selah here, right? There's this cleaning. He rolls the large stone. Typically with these tombs, they put the, the stone on a slightly higher place than where it would sit. So once it roll, when you carve these out, it rolls in and it becomes almost an airtight seal but it kind of drops into a notch. So it's really hard to get the stone out because they don't want the stone to come out. But it can be if God's doing it. So it's big enough. People can roll it. He puts a lot of effort in to serve the body of Christ. Rolling this stone by himself, uh, it's possible for a single person to roll it into its notch, impossible for a single person to roll it out. But if he put his effort in and he got some you know, fulcrum points and a nice big metal rod or something, yeah, he could probably get the stone moved, but he rolls it down the slope. It slaps in and seals. Uh, he puts his own blood, sweat, and tears. I don't see a lot of Pharisees or Sadducees in the Bible straining themselves. This is the only instance where you see them doing something where they might break a sweat, but he does. Puts the work in because he's not above this. He's not above. The other thing is if he's in the Sanhedrin and he's handling a dead body, that means he's not allowed to be part of the ceremonies for seven days. So he just removed himself from the world in order to serve his God. Just every piece of this, the bodies are going to be laid. Usually in these tombs, they'd be laid for a few years. The body would decompose. You'd sweep up the, the dust and put it in a box. Um, but again, Matthew's citing his sources as these three are here and he's not. Um, and he's willing to hang out and do this work with a dead body. You know, I just, the idea that you find somebody who's at that place in life, but they're willing to hang out with people, quote unquote, beneath them, I just think that's great. You know, if you had the opportunity to hang out with a dead Jesus or a living Johnny Depp, pick Jesus, right? Because Johnny Depp doesn't have a path I want to follow in life, right? Or, or if you want the other version, you could, what's his wife's name in the trials that are going on? Amber Heard, right? I, who wants to hang out with that when you can hang out with Jesus? If you're trying to argue or prove resurrection, it's a bit out of place for Matthew to pick a Sanhedrin and two women as the people that buried him. Like this is, unless it actually happened, that's not how you would concoct this whole thing. If you're trying to argue for the kingship of the Messiah, the resurrection part isn't the debate because it happened. The part is, is if he's king or not. And he's buried here in these verses like a king would be buried properly. And, I, and this is really key to Matthew's overall thesis of kingship. 
Um, he's not writing this book to argue about resurrection. He's writing this book to convince the Jews of kingship. So he was buried like a king. Verse 62. Now we've got to lock this thing in. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together for Pilate, saying, Sir, we... I love how they use sir in this moment. They're so hypocritical. Sir, we remember when he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. They even knew he said this was going to happen. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he's risen for the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Now we really got a rebellion. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it as secure as you know how. In other words, I want nothing to do with this anymore. It's on you guys. Verse 66, so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. These are the two things they do. So this is a Saturday. Note that it's preparation day. On the day of preparation is the day Jesus' body is prepared for burial. The Passover goes right with every, every symbolic aspect of it fits like a glove. So there's no rest. You'd think this would be a day of rest. This is their Sabbath. But are they resting? No. They're arguing with Pilate about how to seal up a tomb. And again, this is just this idea that they can't rest. They can't let it go. You've already won, haven't you? You've beaten Jesus. You've taken him down a notch. His following is dispersed. You've won. But evil people can't stop because the reason they're going at Jesus isn't because of Jesus. It's because their own hearts are sick. Once evil gets rolling, it just keeps rolling. So there's no rest for the weekend. They can't stop and relax. So they have to make sure nothing further happens. Why? Because they're anxious and they're threatened. And there's a little piece of them that believes he's going to rise in three days. The darkening of the sun probably emphasized that point. This guy has power. The earth shaking probably got them thinking, we should seal up that darn tomb, right? But the silly part is that they think they can. So verse 63, they use this word of deference, sir, while he was still alive, the acceptance of Jesus' death was prevalent. He was killed, he died, he was dead. This whole he was half dead thing and they mistook it is really placing on the text a, a ridiculous modern theory. Oh, because people in the first century didn't know what dead looked like. Like that's ridiculous. You can wipe down somebody's body and wrap them in linens and, and not catch that they're breathing. That's silly, right? But there's drugs you can use. and Yeah, you're really stretching at that point. They knew he was dead. They dismissed out of hand the theory of Jesus being partially dead all the way into the, the second century. It was absolutely not considered, right? So just too many witnesses, too many children of witnesses and grandkids of witnesses. You simply couldn't make that argument. So remember Matt, Matthew pointed out that there were quickening dead bodies all over Jerusalem, right? There were lots of people that were walking around so there's good reason for the Pharisees and Sadducees to think maybe Jesus will get up too because that just happened. That the veil of death has been torn into also. Verse 63, note, look at the irony of how they called Jesus the deceiver. You have to stop and think, wait a sec, who is the deceiver in this story? Who are the murderers in this story? Like they're still laying on the lies with Jesus. Who are the people rebelling against their king? Was it Jesus or was it these folks? So after three days, I will rise. That would be Sunday morning. That would be this great end of Passover. 
Uh, it would be too great of a climax to let happen. You gotta end this stuff quick. So they make the, the tomb secure. Part of how they would do this is they would wrap ropes around the, the stone. So it'd be a big round stone. We've seen pictures of this. You'd wrap ropes around it. Just like putting chains on your tires, it makes more traction. So if that stone drops into a little notch and then there's a rope there, that little teeny rope makes the amount of force needed to get the rock over it such that you have to lift the weight of the entire stone up onto the rope and then back down. So they'd wrap ropes around it. The second thing they do is they put a seal on it, which they mention a seal. That would be a wax seal that had the governing authority of whoever sealed that tomb. If you break that seal, that's a, now you're guilty of a crime. So they make a civic lock and they make a physical lock. The lock they forget is the spiritual lock, which they don't have the authority to do, right? And so this is kind of cool. So then they put a guard there, secured with a guard. This would be brute force. They got humans. Uh, typically a, a Roman guard would be four people. Because Pilate says, you've got people do it yourself, we don't know how many people were there. Uh, and two on two would have been a, you know, kind of a general shift for this. They'd be fully armed. Whoever that guard was would have all their weapons. The idea is they'll kill anybody that comes close. So you got a human guard. You've got a civic guard with the wax. You've got a rope or a physical guard with the rope. Again, they're just stacking it up. They did everything they could do to end Jesus, that it was all done, that it would be no more. The problem is there's one more chapter in this book. Like this is the chapter that the Jews would have been happy Matthew ended on. Hey, he's just, just this great guy. None of these things kept it secure because you can't hold God back, right? They made it so nobody could get into the tomb. They didn't think that somebody would get out of the tomb. And so they did it the wrong direction. And that, thankfully, praise God, we have one more chapter, which we'll get to next week, uh, because this is not the end of the story. Jesus, Matthew's writing about a king, not a dead person. Uh, so that's where he's going to leave us next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you that no securing of the tomb can win. Lord, we live in a culture right now that is trying to shut down the voice of Jesus, the word of God. Uh, Lord, we live in a culture that, that we have to check who's around us when, as we talk about our faith, or we can choose not to. Lord, we can be like Joseph of Arimathea and just boldly do the sweet love of the body of Christ as we would do anyways. Um, Lord, we definitely live in a culture where the dogs are gathering, the, the bulls of Bashan are around uh, and circling. And Lord, we can't wait for you to come back. We look forward to it every single day. And we'll tarry and we'll go forward, Lord, as you've called us to. Um, but our heart and our hope is for your return. We can't wait for your monarchy to rule uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So come soon. And Lord, we thank you for the last chapter of Matthew. We're not so thankful for this chapter. It was a bummer, uh, but we know it was necessary. Uh, and Lord, we just can't wait to see what happens next. Um, bless us. Bless this week. Give us a great boldness in our faith. And Lord, as dark as things might look, as even if the sun went out, Lord, that is not when we give up our hope. Uh, we hold on to our hope no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how horrible it looks, Lord, we just hang on to you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.
as a point of clarification, at the crucifixion, we have uh, the book of John uh, reporting that John was actually there with the ladies. Uh, and at the burial, we have Nicodemus helping by bringing some spices for the burial. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.